Thank you for listening to audio from Glen Meadows Baptist Church. We hope it blesses you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are not a current member of Glen Meadows, we encourage you to visit one of our services, Sundays at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 16. We are going to study uh, this passage dealing with the church. And as you know, we're going through the series called What We Believe, and today it is What We Believe About Church. And it is a very interesting subject. In fact, it is incredibly exciting when we look at it in its fullness. And my watch uh, shows I have 60 minutes to preach. I don't know what's wrong with my watch, but uh, that's just the way. We'll just go with this one, if you don't mind. So maybe, maybe not. So if, you, if you're there in your Bible, Matthew chapter 16, it's a beautiful passage of Scripture. Jesus at this time is at the last few months of his life, and it's where uh, things are intensifying. The scrutiny of his life and his teaching, he's being interrogated by the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were, uh, they produced all the fake news in his day and the fake religion in his day, and they were always bad-mouthing him and lying because they lived a life of a lie. That's what they did. And so he was, he was always on his guard with these men. And his hardest sermons, his woe sermons, meaning woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, was directed at these religious people. And then next you see this incredible feeding that takes place. And uh, feeding the 5,000 and 4,000, these loaves, and just a miraculous. And, and then Jesus takes the, um, the opportunity to say, be aware of the yeast or the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, because that type of teaching gets in and it, it spreads faster than you can stop it. And that, that's true when there are bad teachings and bad views of Scripture and a, and a faulty view, a fallacy in your thought towards Christ. It can spread. It can, it can get into every area of your life, and it's a problem. And so he is saying, be very, very aware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then he goes 25 miles to the north. He's in Capernaum at this time on the north side of Galilee, and he shoots over to this area, and it's a very interesting area. This area in Caesarea Philippi, so you had Herod Philippi, who after King Herod died, he gave his territory or his rule to his offsprings, and this offspring wanted to have a place that he called Caesar's, so it was Caesar's. Philippi. He, he wanted his name in there somehow. So it's a beautiful region. It's at the headwaters of the Jordan. It's very lush. It's really pretty. But there's something unique about this place. It's far enough northeast to where it was in a pagan country. And this pagan country, they, they worshiped gods and many gods. And particularly this location was a massive outcrop. It's, it's a big side of a cliff and it's a, it's a big rock, which is very important for the interpretation of this passage. There's some teachings of Christ that it's, it's, it's very localized. You need to see the environment to catch the teaching. And this is one of these places where it's a massive rock, and in the rock is inscribed uh, adoration or worship to the god of Pan. And in, in this rock is a big cave, and water would come out of this cave, kind of like a flowing water a river coming out, and they would worship this Pan god by throwing babies into this hole where it would just suck in the babies and die. And it was called, this big hole was called the gates of hell. So Jesus takes his disciples to a very dark place, to a very pagan place, to teach them an incredible message. 
And while they're worshiping the pan god, all the, the pagans were, and they had all these other statues to all these other gods, Jesus poses a question. So here we have in verse 13 of Matthew 16, and it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples. Now let me, let me remind you that this, is, this word ask was a continual asking, as though he had 12 of the guys up there, and he was asking them, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? It was, a, it was an imperfect verb that he just kept asking them one by one. In other words, Jesus is still asking that question of you and me. Who do you say Jesus is? It's the most important question you will ever answer in life. And if you get it wrong, it's devastating. If you get it right, it's fantastic. And so it's interesting that he, in the text it says he kept asking that, who do you say that I am or who do people say that I am? And they answered. Who do they say the Son of Man is? Verse 14. And they said, some say John the Baptist. The reason they would say that, just a couple chapters earlier, King Herod was afraid of John the Baptist, so he cut his head off. And then when they heard about Jesus doing all these miracles, he got really spooked, and he thinks that uh, John the Baptist found his head again and went back to life and was coming back to get him. So he said, oh no, that Jesus guy is really John the Baptist, and he's going to get me. So some say, Jesus, that you're John the Baptist. Others, Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. What's in common with all of these characters is they definitely lived a supernatural life in their proclamation of truth, as well as they were very prophetic. They would tell you what God thinks about you, and then tell you what you're to do about it. Very pointed, very clear, and it was really, it was really interesting. So that's what the world was saying at that time about Jesus. Now, you get the backdrop, right? He's standing on this hill with all these fake gods, and he's going, so who do you say that I am? As though in reference to all these other fake deities, who do you say? And he asked the question very, very poignant. How about you? Who do you say that I am? I hear what the world says. I hear what the lost people say. What do you say? Let me ask you this question. Are you willing to go against the flow and against the crowd? Are you? Because you know what people say about Jesus, that he was a figure, historical figure. In fact, there's lots and lots of books written and entitled in search of the historical Jesus. And all of those statements go back to one main author who started that search, and they have many different conclusions. Some say he was just a good guy. Some say that it was all a, basically like, like a Forrest Gump type thing, that everything just kept happening in the right way out of providence for him. Some say that he was deceived. Some say that he was a lunatic. Some say that he was a liar. But I say that he was Lord and Master. And that's what the Scripture says he is. And he was proven to be that. So what do you say about him? And are you willing to go against the crowd in spite of what you see, in, what, in spite of what the culture says? So he asked that question, who do you say that I am? So, verse 16, Simon Peter, so Jesus turned Peter, changed Peter's name to Simon. And Simon means little pebble, Peter means big rock, and so there's a lot of play on words here that we see going on. So Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah and the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Now, if you, if you draw in your Bible, which is very good, you could draw a line from that word reveal all the way back up to the Pharisees is what he's talking about. 
And the Pharisees said, he said, look, you guys know a lot of things. When you see it red at night, you talk about sailing. When you see it red in the morning, you talk about a storm. And so you think you can see the future, but what is revealed through nature, and that was a problem. And he said, you're missing everything. You, you don't see anything. And he makes it very clear. In fact, he insults them. Like, you can't even get the basic things. And then when he asked Simon Peter, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he says, the Father in heaven revealed that to you. Talking about revelation, God can reveal to you the Son if you're open and you're willing to follow. And so he did. And so that's a very, very important statement that's going on there. And then he says this, flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but I also say to you that you're, you are Peter. He goes back to his original name. It's interesting that he had to bring him down in order to establish him. Has God ever done that to you? Humbled you? <laughs> Allowed you to go through trials? To find your limitations so that you can stand? And that's kind of what's going on here. And then he says this, and you are Peter, and on this rock, listen to the statement, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Then, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. And so you have an incredible statement of Jesus. I will build my gathering, my people. I will build my people, and the gates of hell will not be able to overcome. In other words, there's going to be a battle because of this. And then he steps it up again, and he says, I'm going to give to you, the church, the keys of the kingdom. And then, therefore, whatever you loose on earth will be loose, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound. It's as if... God is saying that you, my church, that I will build, will have an incredible amount of authority that has eternal impact. So what is this thing, the church? As we look at this and we dissect it, we notice five things that are very clear about the church. These things are to be true about Glen Meadows, and it is amazing what we see here. That God is the one who builds his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And they will have the keys to unlock the things that are locked. Or they'll be able to shut the things that need to be shut. And you say, my goodness, what an unbelievable organization. Uh, an organic body. The gates of hell can't even stop it. And then when I read this passage, sometimes I rub my eyes and I go, you know what? I don't know if that's really true about the church. I mean, you know that? I mean, we hear some funny things sometimes. We see that churches close their doors for lack of attendance. We hear about churches getting in fights over the color of the carpet and things like this. And, and, then, and then it goes to where we, we become just like any other organization to where we vote on people to positions because of popular uh, paralysis. We, we, become the kinds of, we become the kind of people that look just like the world. In fact, the world begins to penetrate. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail and they will bind and they will loose and they will have the keys of the kingdom. Here's what that means. It means two things, devotion and design. Devotion and design. Let's look at the design first. 
He says, I will build my church. Here's what you and I need to know. Jesus Christ is the owner and the organizer of a purposeful body. It's not a preacher. It's not elders. It's not deacons. it's, It's not a council. It's not a denomination. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that is the chief shepherd. And he says, I will build my church. The church is comprised of those who are born again as seen in John chapter 3, verse 8. You, to be a part, a true part of the living body of Christ, you and I must be born again. That's where it all starts. Because if he owns you, he owns the church. If he doesn't own you, he doesn't own the church. And he goes on to say, the church is made up of those who are called out by God, called to be God's people, God's body, and the Spirit's temple. When we gather together, we are the Spirit's temple. It's not, let me repeat, it is not, a human institution, like a social club, like many of our good uh, community clubs that are out there. The church is different. God doesn't own those entities. God owns us and has a design and a purpose instilled. It's ownership. To demonstrate God's ownership, God reveals his glory by working through the church. So when we talk about the glory, remember Moses, a few months ago, we talked about Moses wanting to see more of God. And Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, "Now nah, you don't know what you're asking for. You have no idea. The very essence and presence of God, the very sight of God will melt you. I mean, physically melt you. You'll die. Because you don't know what you're asking for. He said, please. And he said, okay, get in the cleft of the rock. He put his, his hand over him and he walks by and he catches the backside and, and he just glowed for days and days and days. And so the glory of God. So what God is wanting to do through people like you and me, just common folks like you and me, and as we understand his design and being devoted to his design, he wants us to reveal his glory, his character. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, as though God is waiting for us to beg him to do great things through us because the Holy Spirit is in us and he's going to reveal his glory through us that will have an effect to generations, forever and forever. So God owns the church. It is His by virtue of design, and we belong to Him. Paul's instruction says, to Him be glory in the church. God will share His glory with no man, no institution, no parachurch ministry, no little league football team. No, no sewing club. I don't even know if there's a sewing club. Surely there's a sewing club somewhere. No fishing club. Nothing. No motorcycle club. God doesn't share His glory like He does the body of Christ. Now, there's a lot of good things to be involved in. I would encourage you to. They're great. They're good. But not like the church. That's His design. It's His design. His body. It is unique by ownership. And we should be given it. But it's also organized. The church is to be organized and purposeful because it belongs to God, and God is purposeful. And we see this to remain orderly and organized with purpose. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 14, 26-32 demands order in the church and is reminded to remain purposeful. Other scriptures, 
mandate for the church to be orderly and organized. In the book of Acts, we see that they appointed elders to oversee. We also know that they placed deacons to care for. Members were counted. They were counted in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. And they instructed them in their spiritual gifts for the strengthening of the church. There was even church discipline. When somebody was doing something really crazy, the rest of the church says, don't do that. And they stopped. Paul reminds Timothy to make sure that things are in order. He told Timothy to set things right. So if this belongs to the Lord, then it is to be infused by the Lord's will. And when we do things, we do it the way the Lord would want done. That's, that's the goal. That's what we want. But the purpose of the church, ultimately, which demonstrates His ownership is this. It's submission to His Lordship. Now listen, He deserves it. Doesn't Jesus deserve our submission to His will? He he created you. He has loved you to the point that He died on the cross for you. Not only in His actions, but also in who He is. He He rose from the dead, being king and lord and master over death, doing a blow to the enemy. I'm telling you, He is worth you and I submitting to His lordship, meaning His mastery over your life and my life. So the the Bible says that the church's submission to Christ and the resulting worship is for the glory of God so that every knee, Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow at the name of Jesus. Even those who are in heaven, even those on earth, all people, when they see Jesus as He is, will bow. And so by design, listen, by design, the church belongs to God. It's His. I will build my church. No man has a right to hijack a local church as well as no believer has the right to give their allegiance to any other, not this type of allegiance, to any other institution, any other pursuit other than what Christ is doing. Let me ask you this question. Are we submitted to the mastery, the lordship of Jesus? If so, then it'll go well for you. Let me, let me just be blunt. Don't answer, okay? Don't answer. But just listen to this question. Is Glen Meadows submitted to the Lordship of Jesus? Well, we first have to ask this question. Are you personally submitted to the Lordship of Jesus? If you are, then we are. If you're not, then we're not. That's just the way it works, right? Hope we don't have any holdouts here. I hope we don't have anybody who's messing up this whole system of his church that he will build and he is building because he owns it. So second, here's what we see. The church is primarily a local assembly. He says this, I will build my ecclesia, my gathering. I will build my church. And it's primarily what we see is that it is a local gathering. There is such a thing as the mystical universal church. There is such a thing. There's a couple, only a couple of passages that speak of the church that way. For instance, Jesus died for the church, which is universal. But out of 114 times that ecclesia is used in the New Testament, three of them in the gospel, one in chapter 16, one in chapter 18, another one in Mark. And all the rest of them, all of them but but two or three refer to a local congregation. So be very, very careful when you're talking very 
you know, with another Christian, you say, and you say, hey, we're all just part of the same church. You can say that as long as you put an asterisk right in your conversation and say, but not really. I mean, universally, when we get to heaven, we will see that. But right now, the church only exists in a very tangible way. Let me say it this way. If the church is not local, it's not universal. Does that make sense? If it doesn't happen in... On, on, in buildings and, and, and on mountainsides and, and under a bridge or wherever the church of a local congregation meets, then there's just no church. Because here's why. The universal church only exists when a local church exists. And many of the commands and the directives to the local church or to the church were taking place while the church was gathered. In other words, when he says, observe the Lord's Supper, that's something you cannot do with the universal church, but it's a command. The only way to do it is with a local church. Breaking bread together, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Devoting to the apostles' teaching. A covenant relationship expressed in love, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. It's, it's something very physical. You love one another. Love is patient. Love is kind, as it goes on to say. The equipping of the saints takes place in a local way. Now, I realize there are, there are, there's a lot of good ministry, and, and many people stay at home, and they watch church on TV, and they stream it. And, 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 and in fact, there's several churches that have what's called campus internet passages, pastors. In other words, they pastor people on the other side of the screen that they've never met, they've never shaken their hand. They can't go to them when they're grieving or mourning or celebrate in a wedding, but they call themselves pastors while they pastor an internet congregation. Now, however, I think it's a phenomenal way to reach people for Christ. I think it is. But you can't call it the church. You can't. It's local. Breaking bread, baptism, equipping in the gifts, sharing with one another, loving with one another, elders overseeing a flock, corporate worship. These biblical functions for a church can only take place if the church is gathered locally. That's what we believe. That's what we believe about the church. I'm not saying there's not a universal church. Praise God that there's a universal church. But there's not any real function that we can experience with a universal church until we get to heaven. There just isn't. So, I hope you're committed to a local congregation. I really hope it's Glen Meadows Baptist Church. In fact, I would highly advise it. I'm a big fan of Glen Meadows Baptist Church. I like it. But some people don't want to be committed to a local church because they're not able to just bounce around and cruise to the, the hottest thing going on. Now look, I admit, there's going, to be, there's going to be times that the sermons aren't going to be that good. I'm just going to tell you, they're not. They're just, I, I hope they'll always be biblical. If they're not, you will tell me, trust me. You do tell me when, if they're not biblical. But I hope, you'd think, I hope you don't think that Glen Meadows is just worship and a sermon. I hope you don't think that. It's so much more. And thank God it's so much more. And that's what it's about. But I pray you get committed to what God is doing and whatever he's doing, he's doing it through a local congregation. So God's church is God's design and it's purposeful, but it's also seen locally. He says, I will build my ecclesia. It's a gathering. That's what the word means, a gathering together. Church means a gathering together. That's what it means. But also it is living and it is growing. That is by nature the essence of a church, living, alive. There is life. There is breath. When you come together, you're like, 
I need that. I need the fellowship. I need the Lord's Supper. I need to watch baptism. I need the the ministry of the church because it brings life and it brings growth. Growth is a natural result of living. It just is. 1 Peter chapter 2 makes that very clear. We are living stones. We're royal priesthood that's alive. In 1 Corinthians 3, 9, talks about there are those that water, there's those that, that plant, and there's those that harvest. It's a growth issue that we see. The church originally saw exponential growth from the very start. In Luke, he record, Luke records in Acts chapter 2 that there were 3,000 people that came to know the Lord, and every day the Lord added to their numbers those that were being saved. Because God is seeking and saving that which is lost. And we will look in a minute that the the church is a gospel assembly, that we promote that. And since we're alive, then people want that life and they come. Every day the Lord added. And the church not only grew in the first few days of its existence, but also it continued to grow. For the first few years of the living church, growth was a natural outworking of its being and its essence. That's true. So there's 3,000 at Pentecost. There was 5,000 by Acts chapter 4. Two pages later, there's 5,000. By Acts chapter 9, it says that they were all over Judea and Samaria. And then, of course, in Acts chapter 28, it says they were all over the known world, just in in the matter of a lifetime. You know what is true about the church? I I do believe this, that I think it's in the possibility that in every generation could win the world for Christ, meaning... Within a 70-year period, those who are born again have the power because of the life that's in the Lord Jesus and the salvation that's offered to win the whole world for Christ. That's the design. But the question is, are we devoted to that? Do, Do we realize that? Do we see the element of that? It's interesting that when you look at Paul, and Paul would rebuke churches left and right, but you know what? He never, this is interesting, Paul never rebuked a church because it didn't grow. He never rebuked a church because it didn't grow. I find that interesting because it seems like growth is kind of the measurement of the church and everybody wants to know, is your church growing, is it not? In fact, I was at a conference one time and I was over at a little snack place and I was getting a snack and I ran into an old friend I hadn't seen in years. And so he said, he asked me, he said, where are you? I said, I'm in San Angelo, that's where I'm at. And he said, how big is your body in San Angelo? And I said, it's the same size it is right here. Just, (laughs) that's the way it is. I mean, people, that's what people want to know. That's, that's an interesting fact. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not the ultimate important issue. This is interesting. I find it interesting. Paul never rebuked a church for not growing. But here's what Paul did. Paul rebuked churches for not living according to their original design, that Jesus owns it, he equips it, he calls it, he wants you to have life, and he wants you personally to grow. So we go back to this one question. Is, don't answer is Glen Meadows growing? That's a good question. I mean, we can, we can show statistically that we are, but that's not the point. The question, here's what it would be. Are you growing? That's the main question. Because if you and I are growing spiritually, then we grew numerically. And when all of us are growing in the Lord, then we as a church are growing numerically. So if a church isn't growing numerically, most of the time, I won't say all of the time, But when a congregation is growing in maturity, they usually grow numerically. Now, there are are certain cases of of drastic persecution and and things like that. I I get that. And and cross-culture or counter 
cultural events that are taking place. That's just true. But for the most part, we are a living and growing body that the Lord gives us. So let me recap. The church is God's organization with God's purpose. It's primarily a local congregation, and we are a growing, living assembly. But then also we see this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 16. He says this. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Christ. We are a gospel assembly. We are to be all about the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us in every way. The gospel is the reason the church exists. Some insist a church that does not share the gospel is not actually a church. That's a really interesting statement. So when we cover these things, these five characteristics out of this one passage of what a church is, if we're missing one of these things, are we really a church? Or is another, just because it says church on the building, doesn't mean it's church on the inside. That's the point. So the gospel message is itself the call that brings the assembly together and connects it to Christ. It is the gospel. It is the gospel that we have relationship with God Almighty. In fact, it's really interesting to know that the church never started until Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And that was where the Peter, being full of the Holy Spirit, makes a clear declaration of the gospel to the lost world. And the gospel is not only the reason the church exists, it is the source of its being. So you and I hold on dearly to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So not only does this allow my name to be written in the Lamb's book of life and I'll be with Him for all eternity, as you will too, if you follow Christ and love Christ and accepted Him as your Lord and Savior, but it also transforms me. So the passage that Scott read earlier in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 He says, I beg you, brothers, by the mercy of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable act of service. And do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, which is your reasonable act of service. You know why Paul says that in chapter 12? It's because the first six chapters, he nails down what the gospel is. And when we know the gospel, we begin to live like Jesus lived. We live the gospel. He did not live for himself. He lived for others. He died for us. And so let me ask this. Is Glenn Meadows committed to the gospel? Let me ask you, are you committed to the gospel? If you are, then we are. If you're not, then we're not. Because we're together. We're the body of Christ. But then lastly, he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Something miraculous is going on here. Peter makes this incredible statement, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus says, now that is revelation. That is what God brought to you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are a Holy Spirit assembly. The church is a spiritual assembly. We are to be empowered. We are birthed by the Holy Spirit. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the church depends on the Holy Spirit. The disciples were being prepared by Jesus to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. In fact, in John 20, he had prepared them. He had risen from the dead, and then he gave them one last last instruction when he breathed on them, which is to paint a picture of of Pentecost, and he breathed on them, and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. 
And so we are a people that the gospel is not only the reason the church exists, but it is our empowerment just like the Holy Spirit is. A characteristic of the New Testament church is that it is brought into being and is empowered by the Holy Spirit, although the Lord Jesus Christ in the church's foundation, the church did not come into being immediately after the death, burial, and resurrection. Listen to this. The church came into being at the coming of the Holy Spirit. So here's what we learned from that. It's not just believing in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for a local church to be in keeping with the purpose. We must also be being filled with the Holy Spirit. A Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered church. So God not only gave the church a miraculous birth by the means of the Spirit, but also He causes us to be dependent on the Holy Spirit. Do you know churches go through trials and tribulations? The churches can go through conflicts. So what we are to do, we are to be praying and to be open to the Holy Spirit and to be used by the Holy Spirit so that when conflicts might arise, we have the grace and the fruit of the Spirit to deal with these things. But also to identify gospel opportunities and to be empowered. We know in the book of Acts, this is a really interesting statement, particularly where it talks about Peter being the rock. In the book of Acts, when there was a major conflict about the way to articulate salvation, it's called the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15, and all the bishops and all the elders and all the churches got together and they met. Here's what they didn't do. They didn't say, hey, Peter, tell us what to believe. They didn't do that. They didn't say, church council, tell us what to believe. Clearly what happened is it says the Spirit led them and guided them. The Spirit spoke to them by conviction. It also says in the book of Acts that the Spirit gave them elders because they prayed together. The Spirit confronts and encourages. That's what the Spirit of God should do here. So when we are all being filled with the Spirit, then ministry goes well and your life goes well and home life goes well. Hey, listen, brother and sister, I'm just telling you, home life goes phenomenal. Hey, brothers, listen, do yourself a favor and invite the Holy Spirit to take over your life. Because what will happen in your family is incredible. Sister, uh, it happens for all of us. When the Spirit of God begins to lead and guide, He changes things. And we see all through the New Testament, the Spirit of God leading and guiding, convicting, disciplining, encouraging, equipping, and that's what happens. The daily life of the church in the New Testament was supernatural because we are a Spirit-led congregation. Well, we are supposed to be. The, the church was accustomed to the authoritative presence of the Spirit that it superseded the authority of the apostles. You see that in the Jerusalem Council. So you didn't have to go to the internet to find out what we believed. You didn't have to take any kind of testing to see where we would go. It was the Spirit of God in the church that just began to lead. And it wasn't, listen, it wasn't as uh, mystical as you think. I don't think so. I mean, we've all experienced this at times. We've all had our hearts right, and we've got together in church meetings or committee meetings or with staff meetings, and you just sense, there's an overwhelming sense of what the Lord wants to do, and somebody will articulate it. And then someone else will say, yes, 
And can we add this word to this or this direction or this, this day or this plan? And next thing you know, you tap into the collective brilliance of the movement of the Holy Spirit while we're in unity and God moves through the church. So it's not just best practices and it's not just best business, but it's what the Holy Spirit is doing in your life and my life. And so we ask the question, is Glenn Meadows spirit-led? Well, let me ask you, are you spirit-led? If you are, then we are. If you're not, then we're not. Because we're together in this. So here's what we see. The church is God's organized, purposeful assembly. The church is primarily local. The church is a living and growing gathering. The church is a gospel-centered assembly. And we are to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has in mind as a church. You may hear me pray occasionally, God, allow us to be the church you have in mind. God, allow us to be the men of God that you have in mind and the women of God that you have in mind. And so the question is, we see the design, but are we devoted to it? Are we dedicated to it? Do we rest upon it and are we in need of it? You say, you know what? And I think Glenn Meadows looks, we can, you know, if we, if we squint our eyes and we look sideways, we can kind of see these principles of Glenn Meadows that's functioning. We are not perfect. We have a long, trust me, I know, we have a long way to go because I have a long way to go. But I can't wait to, as the Lord begins to mature us in these things and begins to pour His Spirit out in a very purposeful way so that when we see Him face to face, He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm committed to Glen Meadows Baptist Church. I'm committed to this type of ministry that Jesus wants. And I pray you will be too. Now you may say, you know what? You may not be a member. And you may say, man, I want to join. Well, you can't. Unless you are born again. You must be born again. It may be the case that you joined and you never have been born again. That happens all the time. Happens all the time. You may, have, you may like the idea of Christianity. You may like the idea of a church. You may like the idea of helping people, which is all real good. But that's not what God is looking for. God wants you to say this, I don't deserve to be a part of the body of Christ. In fact, the church is the only organization you can get in by saying, I don't qualify to get in, right? We have to admit, no, I'm unworthy. And you, here's what he wants. He wants you to say, I need you with all my heart. I will die and go to hell except for your death, burial, and resurrection. Now, Christ, come and fill me with your spirit. And as we went over a few weeks ago in John chapter 3, that's called being born again. And let me tell you, you have to have this. You need it. And if this happens to you, man, you need to be a part of Glen Meadows so you can help us. But unless you're, unless you're born again, you can't join the kingdom of God. And here's why you can say, Brother Mac, that's just kind of rude. No, listen, listen. I can only say on earth what God says in heaven. That's the binding and loosing. That's the keys. That if you tell me you are a follower of Jesus, that, that you, you don't deserve heaven, you deserve hell, and that Jesus died for you, and you're trusting solely in his death, burial, and resurrection, then I can say that's the confession of one who's been led by the Spirit of God. It's not flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, but our Father in heaven did. And then that's where the keys come in and say, listen, based on your profession of faith, 
we will baptize you into the body of Christ by your profession of faith. That's what all that means. So I pray that if you're here today and you're saying, listen, I, I need Jesus, just cry out to him right where you are. And you will find a family here that loves you completely. You may say, I'm already a member, but I don't know Jesus, Lord and Savior. Listen, we would rather have saved church members than lost church members, right? So please accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Thank you again for listening to audio from Pastor Mac Roller at Glamida's Baptist Church. For previous sermons and more information, please check out our website at gmbc.org.